And here's what God says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There is no word like your word. And to have this treasure of your scriptures before us, Father, we praise you. We praise you for what it teaches us. And, and yet, Father, we, want, we don't merely want information this morning. We want to be changed, transformed by your spirit from your word. That is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a study in the book of Exodus. The plan at this point, obviously, is to begin today, Labor Day weekend, and to run all the way through the end of May, Memorial Day weekend. I'm hoping to get us till about Exodus 19 by the first of the year. Uh, so that we can then, at the, as the year starts, kind of slow down as Israel will be at Mount Sinai at that moment and, and take a more focused look on the, at the Ten Commandments. Um, but we'll see if we can make it that far uh, by then. We'll get there sometime or, or another. Some sections of Exodus we will go through uh, more slowly and in smaller chunks, and, and yet other sections of Exodus... Uh, we will cover more quickly and just kind of bundle it together in larger chunks. But what I want us to do this morning, just by having read these first seven verses, is to use these first seven verses to kind of orient us to uh, what we're going to see and consider from the book of Exodus. And to do that then, I just want to say a few things about the setting of the book of Exodus, and actually we'll spend more time looking at the setting of the book of Exodus, and then spend a little bit of time looking at the structure of the book of Exodus. So to to give us this orientation and this overview this morning, let's consider the setting of where we're at in history with the book of Exodus and then the structure of the book itself. And I hope that in looking at the setting and then looking at the structure, it will help introduce us to what is a main thrust of the book. A main thrust of the book is that we would know that the Lord is God. That the Lord, who is the Creator God, is also the Redeemer God. And and that the Lord desires you and I to know uh, that He is Lord, God, Redeemer, but that what we will find as we study the book of Exodus is that the Lord wants all the world to know 
that he is the Lord God Redeemer. So the setting. The book of Exodus picks up really where the book of Genesis uh, left off. The book of Genesis ended with Jacob and uh, his sons and all of that family uh, in Egypt. By the very hand of God, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, uh, had um, uh, made it to Egypt by the providences of God and yet also by the honoriness of his brothers. He had made it to Egypt and yet God used that to ascend Joseph to a place of prominence in Egypt. And uh, in, the, in fact, God used Joseph to spare, literally to spare his father and his brothers and their families from starvation in the land of Canaan. In fact, if we were to entertain a bit of a, of a, of a timeline, um, uh, ex, ex, Exodus 1, 1 through 7 picks up sort of kind of where Genesis 50 uh, leaves off. And, and, and yet um, uh, Exodus 1 through 7 is probably in closer proximity time-wise to the book of Exodus than it, than it is to verse 8 of the book of Exodus. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jacob and his family, back in Exodus, I mean, I'm sorry, back in Genesis, back in Genesis 46, Jacob and his family arrive in Egypt around the year 1875. Now, of course, that's 1875 B.C., not 1875 A.D. That 1875 A.D. would be when Ulysses S. Grant was president of the United States, and he has nothing to do with the book of Exodus. So, 1875 B.C., um, and Jacob is there about 17 years, and then, and then he dies, and of course they take him back and bury him in the land of Canaan, and then they all come back and, and, they, and they live. And then Joseph, uh, who's still in a position of great prominence, uh, he lives another 50-something years, and, and he dies in about 1806 B.C., 1805, and um, and so, so it's really probably about that time. It's maybe about 1800 B.C. that we see the book of Exodus opening up. Just a few years probably after, after Joseph uh, dies. Um, and in these early ch- verses, then even eventually all of the other brothers uh, dies, dies off. And, uh, and, and, and yet when we get to verse 8 next week, Lord willing, uh, we're going to like leapfrog a whole bunch of years, a couple of centuries actually, from, from uh, whereas if, if Exodus 1, 1 through 7 opens us up in about 1800 B.C., uh, it, it'll be about 1600 B.C., when uh, the reality of verse 8 of chapter 1 comes to play. So, so there's about a 200-year spread just kind of collapsed and summarized in the first seven verses of, of Exodus. And it'll be another um, from verse 8 on till we get to about chapter 13 where the Israelites are actually released from this bondage. It'll be another 150-some-odd years uh, before uh, the exodus actually occurs. Uh, and, and, and so, but in this very quick seven-verse, 200-year summary, uh, I want us to kind of think about what's in play here 
in order to kind of give us an orientation uh, as to some important things that we will learn from the book of Exodus. Um, Verse 7. To understand verse 7, which I'll read it, we really have to go back and grapple with something in the book of Genesis. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land, the land of Canaan, I'm sorry, not the land of Canaan, but the land of Egypt was filled with them. So, so verse 7 kind of would cause us to, if we, just, if we just finished reading the book of Genesis and we ran right into the book of Exodus, um, we, we, really there's two questions uh, that we would have to kind of grapple with. The first question is, what is Jacob's family still doing in Egypt? I mean, this is not the land that was promised to the descendants of, of Jacob. And, and then secondly, what do, we, what do we make of the fact that, uh, I mean, is this just a nice statement, or does this have anything to do with what went on before it when it says there in verse 7, and the people of Israel were fruitful and greatly uh, increased, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Well, well first, um, in order to answer the question, what are Jacob's family what is Jacob's family still doing in Egypt? Um, we really need to run back to something that was stated in Genesis 15. This was, this was when God was ratifying or establishing his, the covenant that he made with uh, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. He says something there in Genesis 15, at about verses 13 and 14, he says, uh, uh, as God is speaking to Abraham... Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land uh, that is not theirs. And they will be servants or slaves there. And they will be afflicted uh, uh, for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So what is Jacob and the family still doing in Egypt? Well, God called it. God told Abraham, even as he was promising Abraham the land of Canaan, he said, now there's going to be come a time when your descendants will not be in this land. They will be in a different land. In fact, they will be enslaved in this land for about 400 years Interesting, something he said as well to Abraham in Genesis 15. He said uh, uh, in verse 7, so just a few verses earlier from what I just quoted, he says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you, it's just a a key word here, who brought you, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And so, so already the Lord is teaching Abraham uh, that he is the, the God who brings his people out. He, in, in this case, he brought Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. It's interesting then is because now th- this is played really big and large when we get to the book of Exodus. So uh, for instance, uh, after this 400 years of bondage and the people of Israel um, will be brought out of Egyptian slavery, 
um, when they're on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, uh, the Scripture says, the Lord says to Moses and the Israelites, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Or we could even capture this even before it happens in, in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where when the Lord is speaking to Moses and unveiling his plans to Moses, uh, he says, uh, So say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and you will be and I and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The God of Abraham wants the descendants of Abraham to know that just as he was the God who brought Abraham out of a land that was not his to a land that was his. The, the God of Israel is going to bring his people, now the Israelites, now the descendants of Abraham, out of a land that is not theirs to a land that is theirs. And yet that will occur after some 400 years of bondage and slavery. Now, what is God up to in bringing his people out? Why does he want to do it that way? Why didn't he just plant them there and leave them there and not have to fuss with all of this hassle and turmoil of of the exodus and the deliverance from the exodus? Well, I hope to come back to the answer of why in in just a, a minute. But another thing, and building upon that, a second thing that I think we need to grapple with that that's here in Exodus one seven that makes us have to look back to Genesis for an answer from is um, as early as Genesis one twenty eight after God uh, made Adam and Eve uh, he he gave a mandate to mankind he says there in Genesis one twenty eight be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it. God had global plans from the very start. He never intended just for Adam and Eve to, to, to live a quaint life in a, in a cute garden. Not, not to play that down. I, that garden is awesome. But, but, but God's plans was to take that garden and to go global, if you would. God and, and the means by which he would do that would be through the expansive multiplication, the filling, and, and the fruitfulness of his people. God had all, has always had global plans. Even in, in Genesis 9, after the flood, it, we get a bit of a restart. What does he say to Noah and his family? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But, but what you see as Genesis unfolds is, a, is a, a bit of a twist in the unfolding of that mandate. That mandate actually becomes a promise to Abraham and to the patriarchs. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob and, and now the 12 tribes of Israel. For instance, to, to Abraham, God took what was a command in Genesis one twenty. 
28, and in Genesis 9, 1, to, eight, to Adam and to Noah, and he, and he makes it a promise. He says in Genesis 13, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust, your offspring also can be counted. In other words, you ain't going to be able to count these folks. Or he says in Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. Or he says to Abraham again in Genesis 22, 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. So when we read in Exodus 1, 7, this is no just mere observation. This is a, this is a, a neon lit sign connecting us to both the mandate established in the book of uh, Genesis as well as the promise made to Abraham and to his family found in the book of Exodus. In other words, what we're seeing, even as we're about to be told that, that the people of Israel are going to be placed into bondage, we are nevertheless seeing that God's hand of blessing is upon Israel. Uh, that the promises to Abraham were still intact and were faithfully being fulfilled, including of which is how God will not only cause Abraham and his family to be fruitful and to be multiplied, but how God will, just as he did Abraham, bring him out of a land that was not his own and, and bring him to a land that was his own. God is going to do that now to the, de- to the descendants of Abraham, now to the Israel lights. In fact, this, what we can estimate is um, this uh, group of about 70 persons there in verse 5. Uh, by the time we get to um, uh, Exodus chapter 13 or 12, 12 Exodus chapter 12, uh, we're, we're told then by that point that uh, we're counting probably 600,000 men. And so you could estimate that we're talking uh, a number of uh, well over 2 million people. So within a couple of hundred years, we've gone from a, a family of 70 persons to now literally a nation of millions of people. God had been fulfilling his promise to Abraham and blessing and causing them to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, so, so why? But why, why is God wanting his people to, to fill the earth? Why is God wanting to enact, as we will see in the book of Exodus, such a dramatic deliverance from bondage? Well, we don't have to guess at that reason of, of why. The reason that we're told, something that is at the very heart of the book of Exodus, which, but honestly, that doesn't make the book of Exodus all that unique, because something that is at the very heart of the Scriptures themselves is the answer of why. Why does God purpose to deliver His people in a dramatic way, as He will do in the book of Exodus? Why does God want to to, to cause his people to fill the earth and to expand the earth. Why? Because God desires for himself, his name, to be known. He will make himself known to Israel, for this upholds the 
promises given to Abraham. But God's designs, even to Abraham, is never simply uh, promises reserved for a, a small family. God's promises include the nation of Israel, but God's promises include the nation of Israel and on into all the nations. Genesis 12, going back to Genesis once again, Genesis 12, as God makes his first promises to Abraham. You may be familiar with this, but I'll read it for you. Verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12, he says to, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So I, 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 I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you great, I'm going to make you into a great nation, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, he goes on to say, and and him who who dishonors you, I will curse. And, And here's what he says. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord who created all things desires to make himself known to all nations. He will display that he is the God who judges. We will see that here in the book of Exodus. But he is also the God who rescues and redeems. Moses captures this in what is a song or a psalm recorded in Exodus chapter 15. Listen to uh, just a part of this song, verses 11 through 14, for instance, in Exodus chapter 15. He says, Moses says, speaking of the Lord, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, your stretched, you stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In this case, he's speaking of Pharaoh and his army. You have, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples, now this is speaking of the nations now, the peoples have heard and they have trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of the Philistines. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. See what God is doing? He He is, in the book of Exodus, he is going to make himself known to the descendants of Abraham, who had forgotten him. How do you forget the Lord God? But they had, and we'll see that as, as the weeks unfold. They had forgotten him. Functionally, at least, they had forgotten him. But he will make himself known to his own people in a, in a marvelous way of deliverance and rescue and liberation. And yet, in so doing it the way he does that, 
he, he contributes to his ultimate aim of making himself known, not just to his people, but to all the world. God is never parochial. He is always global. He's always universal. A part of making his name known throughout the whole world includes that it would be known or renowned again among Israel. Uh, but but it, was, it was far greater design than this. Psalm 106, which is arguably a psalm about the Exodus. In verse 8, it says, speaking of Israel, Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might, might make known his mighty power. Why did God rescue the Israelites from Egyptian slavery? For the sake of his name, for the fame of his name among the nations. Or in, in Psalm 72, it says, Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And even as he describes that in Psalm 72, he calls upon all the earth to look to him and to turn to him. You see, God's design behind spreading his people out throughout all the earth is so that what would be really spread out throughout the whole earth is his name and the greatness of his name. What is God up to? He is up to making his name known. Now, in that sense, it's not about us. (laughs) And yet, in this marvelous, loving, faithful agenda of making his name known throughout all the earth. Those who belong to him are the chief beneficiaries of such fame. For God makes his name known among the nations by the kind, gracious, merciful rescue of his people. In in a way that we will see played out in the book of Exodus... It occurs in the literal, physical, uh, releasing his people from slavery and bondage. But by the time the the theme of the book of Exodus repeats itself and is played out again in the New Testament, we will see that it is the Lord God, the Lord God Jesus Christ, who, who will come and be the Redeemer God, who will redeem his people from bondage and slavery, but who will redeem his people from bondage and slavery that enslaves our hearts and enslaves our souls. You see, any of us who are here this morning who do not belong to Jesus are living this moment of our existence in bondage. You're not your own man calling your own shots. You're not a a free individual simply up and deciding to do what you want on your own. The Scripture defines our uh, existence outside of Christ as that which is under captivity to the devil. You are a lackey doing the will of the devil. And he 
hoodwinks us to keep us from fully understanding the implications of such a tragic existence. But there is a God who redeems a people for himself. He is the God who established his redemptive work in the book of Exodus. And he is the God who displays his redemptive work all throughout the scriptures. And he is the God who climaxes his redemptive work in the saving work of his son Jesus who went to the cross and laid down his life for us. So that any and all who turn to Jesus this morning will be released from bondage. Will be given freedom. Not freedom as the world defines it or as you and I might define it, but freedom uh, that the very God who lays out his redemptive plans in the book of Exodus defines it. Freedom to do what we were made to do to begin with, and that is to trust in and to love and to obey and to worship the very God who made us. We are not free until we experience life lived in dependence and obedience and worship of God. And that's played out now in the structure of the book of Exodus. Of course, here in the first part of the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 14, we are, we are introduced to this redeeming God. We are introduced to the name of the Lord who redeems His people. And, and, and in these first 14 chapters, we will see something of the greatness of this redeeming God who defeats the enemies of His people and redeems and liberates and rescues his people, and who does it in quite a splashy, dramatic fashion. And then chapters 15 through 18, uh, we we see uh, something of what it looks like to trust in the name of this redeeming God, who, 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 who is there displaying his good care that he gives to his people, even as his people waffle on embracing and resting in the good care that he gives to his people. And then in Exodus 19 through 24, we begin to see something of another facet of, of learning about what it looks like to live under the redemptive work of the name of the God who redeems us. How we get brought into the mix. How we get to show something of the greatness of God in how we live now as His rescued, liberated, redeemed people. That's where we find the Ten Commandments. The the Ten Commandments are not God's design to keep a thumb on us. Uh, uh, God's Ten Commandments are a part of His redemptive plan by which His redeemed, rescued people would display His good kindness in how He gives order to our lives. And then the last segment, chapters 25 through 40, in one way, shape, form, or another, they show us what it looks like to worship this redeeming God, to worship in the name of the Lord who redeems, that, that, that we get, again, once again brought in to show the greatness of our God as we behold something of His worshipful beauty, as we draw near to Him, as we get brought up into His presence. He's not a God who redeems us and then who keeps us at arm's length. He is a God who redeems us and brings us into His presence so that our hearts are satisfied, not by an arm's length relationship with the God who redeems us, but by a close proximity being brought into, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
We get to see and taste and even display the greatness of God by what it looks like to have hearts that are satisfied to live in the presence of the Lord God. For in His presence are fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. If you do not know this Lord God who redeems, if you don't know Him in in His final revealed state as the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord perhaps in His kindness has brought you here this morning that you would turn and trust in the Lord who redeems, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for how you rescue us out of our bondage and how even the the picture of how in time and space and history you rescued the Israelites out of literal physical bondage and enslavement. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have enacted an even fuller, grander, greater redemption in rescuing people like us. Yes, any and all who would turn to Jesus, rescuing us, redeeming us, liberating us out of our bondage to sin and misery. Oh, Father, your kindness is unfathomable. Your mercy is ever-enduring. We're thankful that we, by your grace, by your powerful, outstretched hand, we get to experience your redemption and you draw us near into your presence. Thank you that we are yours. Thank you that we are yours forever. For we pray this gladly in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, let's stand and sing this.